The first reading is Judges 17. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from you, and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the eleven hundred shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I I will give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took two hundred shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make the idol, and it was put in Micah's house. Now this man, Micah, had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, Where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah told him, Live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. Thank you very much, uh, Robert, for reading that to us. Uh, this is talk part one, which is ominous, probably, for you. But uh, I hope that I've managed to stay within the limits of what we would normally spend on a sermon in two bites. We've got a second reading yet to come and a second talk after that. Um, where we've got to, let me just explain. We've been looking at various characters in the book of Judges... And we've had a number of them. You can probably cast your mind back if you're a regular. We've had Ehud, Deborah, Barak, Samson, Gideon. Any others? Jephthah? Any others? Well, there are lots in there. Some we skipped. Um, We've got a last character to look at tonight. And he is a guy called Micah. He features in chapters 17 and 18 of Judges. So you'll have to read on to get the last two or three chapters because I don't think there's many characters mentioned by name in those last three. Don't spend the whole time looking at those three to find a name now. But Micah is the last guy we're going to look at. And the verse I want to choose from that first reading is verse 6. So bang, smack in the middle of that reading that Robert did. Verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit, which is a chilling description of God's people at this point in, our, in, in their history. In the series, as I said, so far we've looked at some strange heroes in some very dark days. Ehud, the left-handed assassin, Gideon, the scaredy cat, sexy Samson, we could go on, there's a list there of people. God's people kept on selling out to the culture around them. They weren't perfect 
and nor were the rescuers that God raised up for them. And we've had that idea of a sort of spiral of sin that was happening where again and again God's people turned away from God and then their enemies attacked them and enslaved them until they cried out to God. And then once again God raised up a rescuer, a judge, until the cycle repeats itself. Inevitably the judges, though they were men and women of faith, were always flawed as a little reminder that God was actually the one who was his people's rescuer. So you get this cycle repeating again and again because all of God's people are flawed and that's it. Up until our section today, what we have in this last bit of the book is not quite the same. It's actually worse in the last few chapters of the book. We don't have that descending spiral. Here Israel really goes off the cliff vertically, as far as I can tell. Now... At this point in the book, the enemies are not the Ammonites or the Midianites or the Philistines, other nations out there. The enemies are within Israel itself at this point. Who needs enemies when you have friends, your own people, who are just as deadly? And Israel really is pressing the self-destruct button at this point. So we don't have any more judges anymore from this point in the book. At this point, God is not raising up anyone else to deliver his people. Our character today, Micah, isn't a hero. No, he's just your average Israelite in a time when, as verse 6 puts it, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. So if you have a question... Bad situation in Israel's history. If you expand the question out of it, what is the solution if humanity is at risk of imploding and God doesn't seem to be stopping it? He's doing nothing. It's almost as if the phone is off the hook. God is not answering. And you ask the question, will we be able to come up with a solution ourselves in a situation like that? And you put that question yourself. You see how relevant this section of the Bible is is with the questions it raising, it's raising for us when you look at the dreadful events in our world today. Where are we supposed to look for answers? And you can move between the different types of disasters our world faces. Um, we do move, don't we, between the different types of disasters and challenges we face at different points in time. As time progresses, the challenges and disasters seem to change a bit. Maybe 20 years ago... We were living in a fear of terrorism at that stage, with 2001 and 2007, those of you who were alive at that point. Fifteen years ago, there was an economic meltdown that was very much in people's mind then. Most recent, obviously, it's not hard to work out, but COVID and climate change are really on our minds, aren't they? In a fallen world, it's always going to be one catastrophe or another which engulfs us or is threatening to. And if that's not true... At the moment, it certainly will be over time. Where are we supposed to look for answers? Is the solution to be found within the human race? In other words, if we just pull together, if we make an organised and coordinated response, with a bit of effort, we'll manage. Maybe if we change the way we treat those who are different from us, if we lessen our carbon footprint, that will make a difference. Well, it'll make a difference, sure. It may have good effects. But will it actually do the trick? Will that be the solution, those kinds of 
solutions that are generated from within ourselves. You could make the question more personal. What about the effects of sin in our own lives? Maybe some of us feel pretty discouraged and wretched about the things that have happened in our lives. Where are we going to seek an answer to those situations? It might be that we hope that with the right friends and the right disciplines, we will get it together enough to conquer the forces of evil in our life. Those are the sorts of questions I think judges raises for us, and I hope we can find a pointer to an answer in our last visit to judges this evening. But there is no easy fix, simple sticking plaster solution. In fact, what we begin with in the reading that Robert brought us is the wrong solution, self-rule. Or, as verse 6 puts it, everyone did as they saw fit. Which is just what we see in Micah's behavior in chapter 7, but it's not just Micah, it's everybody else in that funny little domestic incident that uh, everyone's up to the same thing. Everyone did as they saw fit in that chapter. Um, You were probably playing catch-up with the story details as uh, they were read to us. If you haven't heard that story before, let me try and see if I've got clear roughly what happened. Micah swiped a huge amount of silver from his mother. Did you get that bit of the story? It says at the bottom, 13 kilograms. There's a real chunk of metal that is stolen that she had, that he swiped. And when she discovered that the silver had been stolen, the old lady let out such a hair-curling curse on the thief that her son was frightened into owning up. So he returned the silver to her. Oh, I did it. Then, like any unpredictable doting parent, she blessed her son as soon as she got the silver back from him. And she uses some of the silver, um, not actually quite as much as she first promised, admittedly, but she uses some of it, what is it, 2.3 kilos this time, for religious purposes, to set up a religious household shrine, make a lovely silver-plated statue. So that's what's going on in this chapter that we've had so far. There's a bit more to come as well. But God's law, let it be said, couldn't have been clear. This is not on. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 14 and 15 says this, The Levites shall recite to all the people of Israel in a loud voice, Cursed is the person who carves an image or casts an idol, a thing detestable to the Lord, the work of a craftsman's hands, and sets it up in secret. Now, Micah should have known better. You might not know this, but his name means, who is like you, God? There's no one like God. No one on a level with God. No one we could possibly dream up to replace God. Who is like God? Well, Micah's name should have given him a clue that making a God-like statue is not going to be a good thing to do. It certainly was forbidden by the law. But he goes along with the setting up of the shrine, and maybe his intentions were good, I don't know. As soon as he had a chance to make it a little better in his eyes, he appointed this wandering Levite as his priest and paid him well, very generously, saying, if if you like, what a good boy am I. Now I know God will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. 
So between them, Micah, his mum, and this wandering Levite are all trying to be religious and win God's favour. But they're not actually paying attention to what God has said. They're opting for these idols and household shrines when God's word had clearly said no. So it's religion without revelation, if I can put it like that. If God had never spoken, then sure, we'd all be fine to just do the best we could to please him. But there had been revelation. God had spoken, and no one was listening. When you or I decide that we'll respond to God in our way, on our terms, it's the same mistake. I think it was useful to have... uh, Tom mentioned at the start of the service that this is Trinity Sunday because the one true God has revealed himself in Trinity. He's told us what he's like. We can't make him up and dream up how we want him to be. And that was their mistake there. Responding to God in our way, on our terms. Thinking of him as we choose. Everyone did as they saw fit. If after church... I ask specifically for hot chocolate, and the nice person brings me iced water. Now, that might be very well meant, but it won't please me, because what I've set my heart on and asked for is hot chocolate. And if we choose to ignore God and decide for ourselves what we'll offer him, we're not going to please him, however well meant it is. We're not really treating him as God if we do that. Let me ask you a question. Is your God a speaking God? Well, the God of the Bible certainly is. And if he's a speaking God, are you responding to what he says? Or just making up what you think about him as you see fit on your terms? Very easy to squeeze revelation out of religion. We sort of hold on to religion, but we do what's right in our own eyes. And Judges is saying, self-rule, making it up as we go along. Self-rule is no solution. Let me read our summary verse again, verse 6, before we have our second reading. I think Mandy's going to do that. But verse 6 is what I want us to hold on as we look ahead to chapter 18. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So I'm saying that that's no solution. Let's see for a hint of a solution what happens in chapter 18. So the second reading is from Judges uh, chapter 18, verse 1, to chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king, and in those days, the tribe of the Danites were seeking a place of their own where they might settle, because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five of their leading men from Zorah and Eshtaol to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all the Danites. They told them, go explore the land. So they entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah, where they spent the night. 
When they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So they turned in there and asked him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? He told them that Micah, what Micah had done for him and said, He has hired me and I am his priest. Then they said to him, Please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. The priest answered them, Go in peace. Your journey has the Lord's approval. So the five men left and came to Laish, where they saw the people were living in safety, like the Sidonians, at peace and secure. And since their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. They also lived a long way off, a long way from the Sidonians and had no relationship with anyone else. When they returned to Zorah and Eshtaol, their fellow Danites asked them, How did you find things? They answered, Come on, let's attack them. We've seen the land and it's very good. Aren't you going to do something? Don't hesitate to go there and take it over. When you get there, you'll find an unsuspecting people and a spacious land that God has put into your hands, a land that lacks nothing whatever. Then 600 men of the Danites, armed for battle, set out from Zorah and Eshtaol. On their way, they set up camp near Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. This is why the place west of Kiriath-Jerim is called Mahana Dan to this day. From there they went on to the hill country of Ephraim and came to Micah's house. Then the five man, men who had spied out the land of Laish said to their fellow Danites, Do you know that one of these houses had an ephod, some household gods, and an image overlaid with silver? Now you know what to do. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites, armed for battle, stood at the entrance of the gate. The five men who had spied out the land went inside and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, while the priest and the 600 armed men stood at at the entrance of the gate. When the five men went into Micah's house and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, the priest said to them, "'What are you doing?' They answered him, "'Be quiet, don't say a word.' Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and clan in Israel as a priest rather than just one man's household? The priest was very pleased. He took the ephod, the household gods and the idol and went along with the people. Putting their little children, their livestock and their possessions in front of them, they turned away and left. When they had gone some distance from Micah's house, The men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites. As they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you called out your men to fight? He replied, You took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask, What's the matter with you? The Danites answered, Don't argue with us or some of the men may get angry and attack you, and you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went their way, and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around and went back home. 
Then they took what Micah had made and his priest and went on to Lesh against a, pe- a people at peace and secure. They attacked them with the sword and burnt down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon and had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in a valley near Beth Rehob. The Danites rebuilt the city and settled there. They named it Dan after their ancestor Dan, who was born to Israel, though the city used to be called Laish. There the Danites set up for themselves the idol, and Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of captivity of the land. They continued to use the idol Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Thank you. That last bit is just a cliffhanger because I wanted the, uh, the start of chapter 19 in our reading. And uh, Alison gave us a bonus sentence there. Um, but you probably can tell what, what I'm going to choose is my summary verse from that chapter. It comes twice in chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. And everything that comes in chapter 18 tells you that that's not a good thing. Then chapter 19, verse 1, same again. In those days, Israel had no king. And as I say, if you want to see how bad that is, read on in chapters 19 to 21 some other time. So all these chapters, the last five chapters of Judges, are dripping with longing. A longing that goes like this. Please, God, give us the sort of king we need. That's the solution. Not self-rule, but God's rule, God's king. Our first reading tonight was a domestic scene. Micah, Mum and the Levite, remember? In our second reading, the whole thing gets blown up onto a bigger scale. Micah's still involved because, you remember the storyline, his priest gets kidnapped by the Danites as a way of hopefully getting God's blessing on their campaign to get some decent real estate right up in the north of the country, north even of Lake Galilee, as it would be later on, into Lebanon's territory, it would be on today's map. Because um, Dan had been down in the south. We actually had a, a judge from the tribe of Dan last time you were uh, looking at judges. Samson came from Dan when Dan was down in the south of the country. But they've seen this juicy parcel of land up north. It looks really good. Ooh, and God will be on our side if we take this Levite with us. When uh, the, the expedition that was sort of scouting out the land came, they heard a southern accent as they were passing outside Micah's house. He's one of us, they must have thought. This was meant to be. Surely we'll take this guy with us. That'll bring God's blessing on the whole campaign. But it's not just one man and his family now who've sold out to false religion. Now the whole tribe of Dan is involved, paving the way actually for the fake gods they had up in the north of the country later on in Israel's history. And then in a lovely bit of storytelling, you get a throwaway line right there, and there's this telling bit of information Kept to the end. The Levite in our story 
wasn't just any old Levite. He happened to be Moses' grandson, Jonathan. Oh, God will obviously be smiling on us with him saying a few prayers for us, they must have thought. How far God's people are slipping from his ways and how fast. Well, that's me skating over Judges chapter 18 at high speed so that you don't resent the fact that you've got to talk in two parts tonight. But if you thought that um, dubious justification for land grabs and changing names was something that uh, only happened today in far-off places uh, in the Ukraine and Russian situation is the obvious equivalent today. If you thought that that was relatively sort of unheard of, no, this is as old as the human race. It's what's going on in Judges chapter uh, 17 and 18. And even if we aren't personally ourselves fighting for our cities and homes... We still do something similar occasionally. We long for God's blessing on our hopes and our security. And we grab it, even if it's against what God has said. And that's what's happening in our chapter 8. What we really need is a good king. A king that will give us the security we so desperately need. Not some man-made religion of convenience. Not some made-up God who we've dreamt up, a God who's really just there to rubber stamp whatever we want, however many people's lives are messed up as a result of that. Now I hope you begin to see where Micah's story is heading there for. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. What's the solution when dreadful things happen? That was the question we started with in our own world, in our own lives. What's the solution when the power of evil is too much? Judges are saying self-rule will not work. Well, we had the sort of spiral up until this point. But when everybody does as they see fit, everybody's coming up with their own solution. As I said, it's it's, at that point, it's a vertical cliff. We fall off. Self-rule will not work. We need God's king. And that's why none of the characters we've met in Judges really can provide a solution. They're all part of the problem. Instead, we need a better king, God's king. We need Jesus Christ. Now, you probably know how in children's groups in churches, the children cotton on very quickly that if they're asked a question, the sure bet is, the easy answer to give is always going to be Jesus. Because... Everybody wants to keep the focus on him. If, uh, if your All Saints kids leader asks a question, chances are the answer is going to be Jesus. I heard about one teacher who once asked the group who they were describing, and they went on with the description. I'm small and furry, they said. I eat nuts, and I've got a big, bushy tail. And then one child was heard saying, I know the answer's got to be Jesus but it really sounds like a squirrel. (laughs) Now, Judges is pointing us on to Jesus in this slightly unlikely way. Samson, Gideon, Ehud, Jephthah, they aren't the solution. They're all part of the problem. We need God's king, Jesus, the one who loved us enough to die for us and whose death really can rescue us from human sin and evil. 
how we need to know that and keep living in the light of that truth. If we've turned away from God, and I guess we all do from time to time, we can be rescued because of Jesus. In fact, you can know that however far you've fallen, your sin is dealt with. And this king has the guidance we need for life. So let me ask the questions we started with once again. When you look at the dreadful events in our world today, where are we supposed to look for answers? Whatever the uh, situation was, the different uh, range of disasters that we might face, terrorism, economic meltdown, COVID, climate change, where are we supposed to look for answers on the big scale? Is the solution to be found within the human race? I was on a train on the Thursday, and that railway security advert makes it sound very straightforward to find a solution to problems. See it, say it, sort it. If only everything was that easy, we just have to see it, say it, and sort it. Can we come up with solutions to these intractable issues? Well... I suggest, if we're honest, we know it's tough, isn't it? We haven't got the solutions. COP26 one year is hailed as the answer, except that we still need COP27 just a year or so later. Our efforts cannot provide a solution. That's not to downplay them and say they're of no value. Of course that's not true, but we mustn't put our faith in them as the solution. It can be that... uh, coming up with those efforts is actually just another form of self-rule, doing our best. It's still a matter of doing our own thing. And instead, we need to submit to God's king. What about the effects of sin in our own lives? Said we might feel pretty wretched and discouraged about the bad things that have happened in our lives. Where are we going to seek an answer? We hope that with a bit of discipline and a few changes here and there, we might be able to conquer evil in our life. Well, think again. That could just be another form of self-rule, doing my best, coming up with solutions myself. Just a matter of doing my own thing. No, instead, we need to submit to God's king. God has come to us. We thought about that when we we said the creed, didn't we? God has come to us. We don't need to guess our way to God or come up with ideas about him. We have the image of God, so we can get rid of the idols, the fake made-up gods. The challenge isn't to be vaguely religious, sympathetic with Christian morality, nice, and to try and win God's favour and blessing that way. It is to submit to Jesus. And I want to invite all of us to do that again tonight. Do it again if you've done so many times before. Do it for the very first time if you've never really asked Jesus to be your king. There's a story about a time when Admiral Nelson had defeated a Spanish ship and the commander of the Spanish boat heard that Nelson was a gentleman. So when the Spaniard came on board Nelson's flagship, he held out his hand in a gesture of friendship towards Nelson. And Nelson's supposed to have said, your sword first. Because there could be no friendship without surrender. And it's really important to learn that lesson. I cannot have Jesus as a friend unless I take him as my king. And for that to happen, I've got to stop 
fighting him. And maybe that starts with a prayer where I say, sorry, Jesus, I've been wrong to resist you and to fight you, and I want to stop. And then wonderfully, I'll discover when I do that that he forgives my sin, he's a friend like no other, and there is no one better to run my life for me. Let's pray together. We pray again, as we've already prayed, that your spirit would work amongst us through your word in this strange bit of the Bible that we've been looking at tonight, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.